Support for this podcast comes from CDW and Adobe. At CDW, we get your organization can be demanding. We know you're in there. I know. The marketing team's outside my office. They want their Adobe update now. With Adobe's value incentive plan, deployed by the experts at CDW, you can quickly and easily manage software subscriptions for the whole team. On Acrobat and Creative Cloud? All included. Cool. Guys, I'm coming out. Don't hurt me. For a satisfied digital workforce, you need Adobe and IT orchestration by CDW. People who get it. Find out more at cdw.com slash adobe. Support for this podcast comes from Wild Turkey Kentucky Straight Bourbon Whiskey. Let's tune in to their one-on-one with Jamal, a real bartender from Old Fourth Ward in Atlanta. I really get into the backstory of whatever I'm pouring. Out of respect, there are literally years of experience behind these bottles. Wild Turkey, same recipe since 1942. If you want a true classic, this is what you want to order. Wild Turkey. Wild Turkey Distilling Company, Lawrenceburg, Kentucky. Copyright 2020, Campari, America, New York, New York. Never compromise, drink responsibly. Fellow knowledge seekers, I hope you've had a chance to listen to the Waterline podcast on iTunes or in your Android podcast app. People ask me all the time, Shane, what's the future look like? Are we going to flourish? Are we are we going to drive ourselves to extinction? Are we going to destroy everything? Are we going to create heaven on earth? A big part of that incredibly complicated question is water. Water is absolutely fundamental to life. And knowing what is going on with water, the various technologies, the economics, political, social, behavioral, technological, and environmental aspects of water around the globe is really fundamental to understanding questions like that. And if you guys are into science and learning about things that affect our lives and the world, which I know you are, I believe the Waterline podcast is for for you. I just finished a episode called Water for All Regulation all about comparing the different regulations in different areas like the Israeli water law passed in 1959 and comparing how their system of of regulating water compares to California's model of regulating and how We might work together to figure out the best pros and the cons of different systems all around the world. Very, very important stuff. Please check out the Waterline podcast on your Android app and at the iTunes store. Hey, everybody. Guess who's on Reddit? I am. I had a friend make a subreddit for the Here We Are podcast. And by the way, you can easily find the link at herewearepodcast.com. And uh, it's, if you are unfamiliar with Reddit, like I am, uh, so I'm about to make a fool of myself. Basically, it's very, it's a very simple. I just started making my first few posts. Um, what we're doing with the subreddit, post the episode link. And then when people have uh, comments or questions about it, they post it on there and it it's, a, it's a, a bit of a form, and there's up and down votes for various um, uh, posts, and then I will try to reply to everyone's um, posts and comments and questions and all of that and get conversations started each week. So please go to Here We Are Podcast on Reddit and subscribe to that. Uh, jump in on the conversation 
and I will be checking um, many times a week, trying to uh, keep discussions going on there. I think it'll be a, a superior way to have these kinds of discussions rather than the um, the ask, ask a scientist thing that we've been doing through here we are uh, podcast.com is that's just coming to me but on reddit a whole bunch of other people and other fans are able to respond with their own thoughts and um, yeah so check that out please and spread the word for me if you're a big reddit person i'm brand new to it i don't know what i'm doing yet but i am figuring it out uh just like this life trying to figure it out enjoy today's episode and thank you so much for listening are we yes where are we here why are we here not entirely clear Misfits thrust into existence by random chance with no hints at all as to how we're supposed to make sense of it all. It's immensely bizarre. Here we are. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Here We Are podcast. Today, I have Professor of Marketing at Stanford, Christian Wheeler, is joining me. Hello, Christian. Hey, man, how's it going? I'm wonderful. Thanks for coming on the program. Did you have any? Uh, did you have any mixed feelings about uh, about coming on? <laughs> I, I see you did a lot of research with uh, regarding um, uh, mixed feelings and and um, ambivalence, uh, right? Yeah, absolutely. So a lot of what I study is about how people have uh, conflict between various aspects of their attitudinal representations. Um, keep going. Explain. There, so what do you mean by their attitudinal Well, so the, mas- the most basic form is uh, what you call attitudinal ambivalence, right? So you might have positive and negative feelings towards the same target, right? So you might say, man, I really like Obama. Uh, he's great on all of these other these issues, but he's also bad on all of these other issues. And so I have mixed feelings about him. And so right. that's what uh, scientists call attitudinal ambivalence. Um, and it has two different forms. There's one, which is the objective part. And so that's just the presence of these positive and negative things in memory. And then the other part is uh, what they call subjective ambivalence, which is the, the subjective experience of conflict. So I have mixed feelings and I feel a value of tension and it makes me feel bad having these mixed feelings. Hmm. Um, so, so what, uh, it, what studies have you, have you done about that? I, I, how have you, um, it, like, like I saw you did some stuff with self-esteem and uncertainty and there's it, it, priming people for thinking about the individual rather than the, the collective. Um, so how, as, as someone who has lots of mixed feelings all of the time about life, I am, uh, I'm a little curious. One, one, I'm curious about the self-esteem um, research, because I looked at a little bit of that. Could you talk about that? Sure. Uh, so uh, I think you're talking about something slightly different. So this is self-esteem and priming work. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So that's um, on how s- subtle influences can change the way uh, people behave and the way people feel about themselves um is that the work you're talking about i think so i think it was it was regarding oh man it it was regarding how your your self-esteem can make you have more um ambivalent oh (laughs) sometimes the 
your um, ambivalence can be kind of like a self-defense. Oh, yeah, yeah, to... yeah. So that's something different. Yeah, so lots of times we, we you want something, and you don't yeah. know if you can get it. Yeah, right? yeah. Like, man, I really want to date that girl, but she's probably going to turn me down. I don't know. <laughs> right. or, or I really want to, I, re- I want to get tenure, and I don't, man, but I don't know if it's going to work out. I think it's going to work out, but maybe it's not, or I want to get this job. Or I want to I want to have this bid on this house accepted or whatever it is. Like there's lots of situations where we want something. I want to have the best comedy science podcast yeah. in the world. Yeah, right. I want it to be so badass. And it seems like things are going well, but man, I don't know. Like this could be a total train wreck. And so you know, like, and if it's a train wreck, you're gonna you're gonna feel like a jerk, right? You're gonna feel bad about yourself, like you weren't good enough, yeah, or you didn't yeah. do you didn't do it right. And so. Uh, you know the work on ambivalence, like I said before, like it's uh, subjective amb- ambivalence is a negative thing, right? It doesn't feel good to have this conflicting tension between our evaluative constructs, and so the literature to date is mostly assumed like it's a negative thing, and 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 research has shown that people avoid it when they can. We don't want to have mixed feelings about stuff. We want to know what's good. We want to know what's bad. But uh, the point of this project is like, well, I don't I don't know that that's always true. That there may be situations when you really want something, and you don't know if you can get it. This is one context in which this can happen, uh, and and you're going to feel bad if you don't get it. And so, as a sort of emotional hedge, you you start cultivating mixed feelings about it. So you say, "Man, you know, it'd be really awesome if this podcast worked, and I, you know, I'd be the next Joe Rogan or whatever. I'd be yeah. super famous." But you know, podcasts are kind of done anyway. Everybody's done it. You know, I'd rather have a TV show anyway. So if this sucks, like, I don't really care. Yeah, yeah. And, and so then if it doesn't work out, you feel better about yourself. Because right, this right. thing is like, it wasn't that great anyway. It's like both good and bad. That's like, you, you'll, guys guys make a lot of statements like that when they're like approaching women. Like they'll go up and hit on a woman and, and then... And then the woman like rejects them or whatever. They're like, "Oh, I didn't want you anyway." Yeah, whatever. yeah. I mean, she's hot, but uh, you know, <laughs> she's see her ass. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, right. And so, like, and it works that if you if you have these mixed feelings, you feel better about yourself uh-huh. if you don't get it. But if you do get it, then you feel worse about yourself because uh, you got this thing that you know now you feel you already about. constructed yeah. all of the negative things yeah. that go along with. God, now I can't leave the house without, <laughs> without uh, you know, the press wanting to ask me about my podcast <laughs> and stuff. Oh, this is my worst nightmare has come true. Yeah, right. So it's, you know, it's like a, I don't know. We we compared it to like an insurance policy that like it's great when it works, but if you don't need it, then you know it's it's costly. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. In the end, right? Oh, uh, that's interesting. Yeah, that's a fun metaphor. Um, huh. I mean, it seems like why why wouldn't that be a more balanced way to live to assess the negative and pos- positive as you know, and everyone says everyone always says, "Don't look at life in like black and white." Yeah, yeah, or whatever. Isn't that kind of isn't the ambivalence creating like a bit of a gray area? Um, it, I don't know. It, it, I I would think that it would. Uh, I, I would think that it would create, like, if not a more balanced life, a more, uh, like, mindful one, or, or maybe help you come up with more strategies and more options in life. 
Yeah, totally. And there, you know, so you can imagine multiple reasons why you might want to know the pros and cons. Like maybe you're considering a you're considering a new TV show, right? And you right. want to know, okay, like this is great. I'm going to have all the support, but there are all these downsides. They want creative control and all this other stuff. And I've, I've, like, I've been thinking about, um, I really want to buy a van <laughs> recently. <laughs> I've, been, I've been like, on, that's been going through my head. And I'm like, well, you know, one thing is you have to tell people that you own a van. And that's, <laughs> that's like the main negative thing about it. Everybody but, loves vans. What's yeah. negative about that? <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, but it is, I, yeah, I, I don't know. Maybe it's, I can't tell if my, um, if it's inhibiting me from getting a van, like the the thing, well, there's lower going to be lower gas mileage. <laughs> but I'll be able to take some naps on the way to my destination. <laughs> and, and I, I do like thinking about all the possibilities, but I also feel like I sometimes get a little bit of analysis paralysis, where I'll just like not make a decision um, because I'm thinking of too many different. Uh, options yeah and sometimes you do that when you when you don't want to make a decision right you're reluctant to pull the trigger and so you just keep seeking more and more information and you keep trying to talk yourself uh, out of out that's of having my a, life yeah huh <laughs> um <laughs> yeah that's um that's interesting so how do you is is there a way to hmm so what, so what if you don't want to fall into analysis paralysis, but you want to measure like the pros and cons in life? What's a, what what's the best way to balance those those things? Uh, well, I th- I don't know. Uh, this isn't empirically based. I guess this is just me me talking. But I think right. like you you set a deadline, right? You say like, okay, I'm gonna at the end of this week. I I know everything I'm gonna know about vans, so I'm gonna buy the damn van or not. And that's. <laughs> That's it, and then I'm going to live with the consequences. Uh, so you have to set that closure point. Yeah, right? yeah. Hmm. Um, what's What's the work that um, that you did with the priming, like the thinking about the individual versus the collective? Oh yeah, so that was work. Um, looking at uh, how uh, self uncertainty makes people susceptible to subtle influences, right? And so you there's. Uh, what we, what we showed there is that, uh, you know, there are different forms of selves across different cultures, right? We didn't invent that idea. But in the, in the West, you know, we have this notion of an individual self, the stuff that makes us totally different from other people. And that's, uh, for most Westerners, what's central to their self-concept, right? Yeah, the we're things that make you different. Snowflake. Yeah, exactly. You're yeah. unique and special. And that's not true in a lot of Eastern cultures, um, in a lot of Eastern cultures, it's it, the, your group identities are more central uh, to your self-concept. And so you're concerned about uh, how well you fit in with important groups, you know, what a good family member you are, what a good team member you are, this kind of stuff. You're, uh, you're a very good piece in this important puzzle. Yeah, yeah, right. And, and of, but, you know, within each culture, there's a lot of individual variation, mm-hmm. too. Um, but we found that, that people are... Uh, uh, more uh, susceptible to influence when that central part of the self-concept uh, is, is under threat. So when I feel uncertain as a as an individualistic Westerner about mm-hmm. my own personal identity and who I am and what I'm all about, um, then I'm more susceptible to subtle influences uh, like primes 
Um, but uh, not when I'm uh, uncertain about my group identity. Um, but the reverse is true for people who are collectivists or people who come from collectivist cultures. Mm. And so the notion is, is that not all, not all self-uncertainty is the same, right? That there are certain, uh, depending on your cultural orientation, there are different parts of yourself that are more central and therefore make you more uh, inconsistent or, subtle to, or uh, susceptible to influence. Hmm. How do you test that? Uh, well, the way we test it is that we either uh, get participants from different cultures or we measure their cultural orientation on their number of collectivistic, uh, individualistic scales. Um, and then you prime them with different concepts. And then, What's uh, an example of a, of a concept? Uh, you could prime different traits, for example. So you could, uh, you know, there are lots of different priming manipulations that have been used for a long time in social psychology. So a standard one is like unscrambling sentences um, related, they have words embedded in them uh, related to a particular trait or a particular characteristic or a particular stereotype. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, and then you can measure their resulting behaviors or the resulting self-perceptions um, as a DV. Hmm. Um, all right. Uh, <laughs> how, how do you, um, oh man, I, I made the worst notes for this week. <laughs> I just wrote the word change on it and, yeah. and, and I know it has something to do with the ambivalence and how to, oh man, what was it? Um, I might just have to come back to that one. Um, all right. So Let's just, um, I'll breeze by that and let's talk about, um, advocating things and, and how, how people's, uh, idea of other people's plasticity, um, uh, kind of shapes the, uh, how flexible they think others are. Sure. Uh, yeah. So that project we were looking at, what makes people advocate? What makes people tell other people about their opinions or try to persuade other people? Um, and one, the approach that we took to that is based on Carol Dweck's work. Do you know her work on mm-hmm. implicit theories? So she, she's a famous social psychologist at Stanford, and, and she has uh, this research on mindsets, which she calls um, uh, incremental or entity mindsets. So you know, people, there are two types of people in the world. There are people uh, who f- feel like you can change what you're all about or, or people who feel like you can't. So if you're an entity theorist, you think that, uh, the traits you have uh, are the traits you have. The abilities you have are the abilities you have, and there's nothing you can do about it. Mm-hmm. You know, so you're born smart or stupid, and uh, you know, tough shit. If you were born stupid, there's nothing you can do about that. Um, right. Work isn't going to fix that. Uh, or if you have an e- incremental mindset, if you're one of these people, if you're an incremental theorist, you think that hard work can change stuff. You know, so you you may have failed that test, but if you failed it, it's not because you're stupid. It's just because you didn't try hard enough. Mm-hmm. Right? So maybe you just need to work harder, and then you can pass the test. And so she has a bunch of work looking at that with different abilities and stuff, showing that um, people with incremental theories do better in the face of failure. How how so? How do you so you have people like fill out a questionnaire to determine how where they stand on on this, whether they're more incremental or um, uh, what's the other one? Uh, entity. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, well, like anything in the universe dealing with people, there, there, there are two ways to go about it. One is measuring individual differences, so there's scales that uh, assess this. You can have people fill out questionnaires. Uh, but the other way to get about it is, is to measure or to manipulate it. And so you can give 
so in her case, uh, one popular manipulation is you, you give people a phony press release, right? And you say, ah, you know, people used to think that uh, human abilities were fixed in stone. Uh, but as it turns out, human actually quite plastic, and you can change your abilities. Uh, or, or the reverse. Yeah. Um, uh, for children, you do something similar, but a little bit different. You know, you just tell them that, you know, th- things can change or not. Um, and, and, and so, you know, these things are both, they're both individual differences, but you can affect it in the, in any given situation. And so we took that idea and we didn't use it for abilities or skills or, or things like this, but we used it for people's evaluations. You might have, you know, you might be the kind of person who says like, look, you know what, you like what you like and you dislike what you dislike and there's nothing you can do about that. Like, look, you're born, you like anchovies or you don't like anchovies. There's no amount of wishing that it's different that's going to make you like anchovies or not. It's just the way the world is. That, that'd be an entity theory of attitudes. Or you could say, no, you know what, look, I think about the, the stupid stuff I liked as a teenager. I listened to all these terrible bands and I had wore horrible clothing and I, I liked all this dumb stuff. I, I can think about all, all these attitudes that have changed over time. I have an incremental theory of attitudes. Yeah. Right? I think my attitudes are really plastic. They're totally responsive to information. And so you could you could imagine that these things would have different effects on my my willingness to advocate. Mm. Right? So on the one hand, if I'm thinking about my own attitudes, I say, man, my own attitudes are fixed in stone. I've, they've never changed. I've hated anchovies my whole life. Then uh, you know, I, I probably feel more certain about those attitudes because I think they're going to be the same. They've always been the same. They're always going to be the same. And the, so I should tell everyone. I should tell much. everybody because I know I know for sure what I think, right? Yeah. <laughs> and if you think different from me, you're wrong, right? Because I know I know the right attitude to have. Uh, but on the other hand, if you're focused on other people, and I know, look, I've talked to you. I've tried to change your opinion. I know your opinion's not going to change. Your opinions are fixed in stone. They've always been the same. They always will be the same. And there's no point in trying to share my opinion with you because what's the point? Yeah, we're never going to uh, see eye to eye on this. So we're never going to see eye to eye because you're just you're who you are, and that's <laughs> fine. And so what you find is that, that the same belief, the attitudes are fixed and unchangeable. They have these opposite effects on your willingness to advocate, right? That on the one hand, it makes me feel certain about what I think, and certainty about what I think makes me more likely to share my attitudes. But on the other hand, if I think about how you're certain and how you're never going to change your attitude, I think you're less persuadable, and so that makes me less likely to try to persuade you. Um, And so on average, the net effect of those two things balance each other out. So there's no overall effect, and you don't know what the effect is until you dig into the underlying process. Um, but you can you can move it around. Like if you have an entity theory, and I make you think about your own attitudes, then you're going to be more likely to try to persuade me. But if you're thinking about my attitudes, you're going to be less likely to persuade me. So your focus on yourself as an individual or on other people can have an effect. But also the also you can affect it by the way uh, you frame it. So if I frame it as something like standing up for your own views, if I frame advocacy as standing up. Then an entity theory is, makes me more likely uh, to try to persuade other people. But if I frame it more as a as a dialogue or an exchange of views or an opportunity to learn, then you tend to get the opposite effect. Hmm. Uh, that an incremental theory makes me more likely to want to engage in a dialogue or an exchange or an opportunity to learn your attitudes. Hmm. What about what about like um, saying something negative, like calling someone? Like, don't be preachy or something like that. Would, would that have, 
some sort of effect on on how it, you know you know because there's there's I mean this isn't something you've tested I guess but but uh, if you say uh, hey I'm gonna stand up for my because sometimes I feel this way when I'm like arguing with people on Facebook or whatever like I'm standing up for the moral rights of blah 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 whatever silly story I tell myself. And then, um, but then other times I'm like, ah, you sound real preachy right now. Don't, (laughs) don't tell other people how, how to behave. Is that, is that in the same like vein of, of things or? That's a little bit different, but you can imagine framing, framing either one of these viewpoints about your own attitudes as either positive or negative, right? Mm. So if you, if you feel like your attitudes never change, your attitudes are always the same, like on the one hand, that's that's a positive thing, right? You have conviction, uh, you have you know strong values, you're committed. Those are all positive things. But on the other hand, you could you could frame it in a negative way, right? Like uh, you're stubborn. Uh, you're stubborn. You're not open to new information. You're closed-minded. Um, so the same trait can be um, framed in in different ways. And obviously, you know the the way you the way you frame a given characteristic should uh, affect the likelihood that people are going to embody it. So you know about how to prime these various. Do you know about what what types of people end up falling into these kind of categories naturally? Are there are there like political differences? Are there any like gender differences, age differences, anything like that, where where some people are falling into the entity cap, uh, or or crowd, and and um, and other people are falling into the uh, incremental? Yeah. So so we have some data. This is really preliminary, so don't don't bet anything on this. But we have some preliminary evidence that the Republicans or those with conservative views are more likely to believe that their attitudes are always the same. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that people's attitudes don't change. Mm. Um, but more generally, if you look at the social psychological literature, like people with conservative viewpoints think, think that things shouldn't change, right? They have less openness to experience and right, less right. openness to alternative viewpoints and this kind of stuff. Mm. Yeah, everything that was older <laughs> was great. Yeah. We got to get back to that. Yeah. Um, hmm. that, that's interesting. So, so if you... So uh, say you wanted to, uh, okay, here's a, here's, <laughs> sometimes I'll be uh, on Facebook. I'm, I'm just like, here's some joke or whatever, or statement um, about you know, whatever thing is happening in the news or whatever. Um, usually it's half serious, half not. But if I make a statement, that will get people like very fired up. Where, yeah. Whereas if I'm like, hey, what do you guys think about this? <laughs> That, then people are much um, more open in their conversations, and much more. There's way less like name calling and and that sort of thing on on forums. Yeah. Um, are there are there ways to prime more of a reasonable conversation? Uh, like like if you were to. Um, if you were to watch like a political debate, if 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 you were, um, if, if you got to give advice on how some of these political debates ran, so that it wasn't just like two people yelling at one another, what kinds of things can we do to increase more kind of reasonable advocacy and understanding? Yeah, that's a good question. I don't know for sure. I mean, a lot of I think a lot of the political stuff is that we've 
we have these pretty ossified views of what the other side is like, right? I don't so know we, what ossified means, uh, actually. Uh, you know, calcified, hardened. Oh, uh, yeah. You know, we we think you know those those damn people from the other political party are are just these bastards, and so you know, I think part of what makes the political scene so difficult is that people have already you know they've decided that there's no possibility for reconciliation and stuff. Hmm. But what you can do is you can affect. Um, people's own views of themselves and others like through the types of manipulations i said um we also you know we, you can give people f- false personality feedback we we have one study where we you know we we embed feedback about the malleability of theirs and others attitudes uh in in a kind of a, a barnum thing so barnum manipulation is like uh it's kind of like what these uh fortune tellers and stuff do right you tell people some stuff that that everybody thinks is true even though it's like um it's fictitious information like i say so some of it's flattery stuff right like you're you're a very perceptive individual yeah, uh thanks and yeah. you know you're yeah, uh, a lot of people say that about me <laughs> <laughs> and then other stuff is mixed so that it doesn't matter which side is really true you know it's true so it's like you know you can um you can really be uh, be flexible and in, in response to your environment but at the same time you know you've exhibited a lot of stability throughout life or whatever right, right? like ah, that seems true no matter who you are uh, you know, it's there are you really enjoy at times being around people that you care about, but you often sometimes want to be by yourself. Yeah, like it's like, just horoscopes. Yeah, it's horoscope stuff. And then we embed in there. You know, f- we have them fill out some personality questionnaires, and then you embed in there uh, a manipulation um, of their attitude stability. So you say, in contrast to other people who tend to be really flaky and they change their attitudes all the time, you have conviction in your attitudes yeah. and you've exhibited, you exhibit a great deal of attitude stability over time or, or the reverse, right? And, uh, in contrast to these people who tend to be very closed minded and unresponsive to information, you can flexibly adapt to your environment and incorporate new information that comes and change your opinions. Um, and that's a way you can simultaneously manipulate both your own perceptions about your own attitudes and, and perceptions of other people's attitudes. Hmm. I'm, I'm, I'm so obsessed with the idea, um, these days that it, it's just because there's so much politics and everything on the news that so much of this stuff isn't about actually what's happening with gun violence or wars or financial situation, uh, you, you know, where, what your actual perception of the economy is or your job or whatever else is so much of it is just related to, uh, you know, uh, people, people's varying degrees of openness, people's varying degrees of how they perceive others. Plasticity is, and there's just like no more to it. Than, than those initial things, and then they filter everything else through where they stand on whatever policy or whatever else, and it has really nothing to do with the policy in general. It's just their personality. Oh, yeah, and it's totally getting worse, right? Because all of the places people get news now are self-selected, and Facebook's filtering your feed so that you're more likely to see stuff that you agree with, and you're choosing yeah. your own partisan media to consume and everything. <laughs> right. So everybody's living in their own personal echo chamber where they just think the other side is just insane and they can't possibly understand how someone could you know at all hold that other viewpoint it just makes no sense and from the information they consume it probably doesn't right yeah i mean <laughs> you can you can go down like the you know i've i have friends that are way down like the conspiracy tunnel and <laughs> stuff because you can find those 
those things on the internet that just they'll get you and you know next thing you know you're believing in shape-shifting lizard people that live under the earth and control the government and media and all that just because you're 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 self-censoring the amount of information that's getting into your brain. Yeah, and then on, on the off chance that you happen to encounter something that disagrees with your point of view, there's always that safety net, too, where they say, you know what, you can't trust the media, right? Those other media sources, they're all lying to you. They're trying to cover up the lizard conspiracy, <laughs> yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. Uh, because, you know, the government's all in this, and the government controls the media. So, I mean, they don't want you to know this stuff. So that when they tell you you're crazy for believing in the lizards, you know, that's just part of That just proves we're right. It's uh, pretty soon. It's going to be like um, men will just get their views from like the naked news. You know, <laughs> like well, I just think the naked news—they're the only ones really telling the truth out there. Because you, know? <laughs> you just flash them some titties, like you know, just uh, they make a lot of great, interesting points about politics. And <laughs> it's very compelling. Very compelling. <laughs> um, um. So. Uh, just from, uh, uh, I don't know. I always get away from people's work sometimes just thinking of things in more of a philosophical way. Okay. We'll talk about whatever. If if you want to, so, so say you're someone that goes, you know what? The brain has a lot of these biases and I had a biased upbringing and I might have, biased genes i might have a biased environment that i'm in i want to learn to be more objective and get other people's points of view more and and be a little more understanding it's so easy to say that actually doing it is so difficult to do like i really like to think of myself as a very open-minded person and i rate very highly in like openness and whatnot and the big personality <laughs> indicator and yeah of course and all of that stuff <laughs> but um but i i still i mean i still i i see my biases all over the place you know in watching the news and everything else i i'm often like i'm I'm not informed enough, and I think I'm more informed than I think that I am. Yeah, well, and then, you know, your beliefs are always shaping your perception and interpretation of stuff, too, right? You're, you live in this reality tunnel, and so, you know, not, not even if you're exposed to the same information, you're interpreting that information through your own lens of your own pre-existing biases, which is why people can two people can look at the exact same thing and have two totally different interpretations of what happened. Hmm. Right. I mean, like I readily, I know you're not a big sports fan and stuff, but you see this with sports games and stuff, right? Like people see totally <laughs> yeah. different fouls and yeah, totally the, the, the refs the, are totally yeah. biased one way or the other, right? They're watching the exact same thing. They're seeing this stuff in the slow motion, high definition. Team. But, you know, it's like my team always gets screwed. <laughs> yeah. Always. Right. And, and, and that's just, that's once you're forced to consume the information, right? And so much of this stuff happens before. Like I can, choose which information I'm consuming and choose the people I'm hanging out with and, and all of this. So it's, it's no wonder that everybody thinks they're right all the time. Right? And, and, you know, and people, and oftentimes we don't have conversations with people about this stuff because people get so defensive when their views are challenged that it's just, you know, unpleasant. It's why, you know, you don't talk about politics and religion and stuff like that with your friends because it's just, uh, it's forbidden. Right? You know, right, you know you're going right, to end up right. fighting about it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um... How, how does science try to eliminate some of these biases? And like, how how in your work do you have to? Um, I mean, this this is this is kind of 
a big part of the idea of the scientific method in general, right? That you're trying to, okay, we're, we're trying to find the objective realities and not let our subjectivity influence um, how we feel about objectivity. Yeah, yeah. Um, what, what, what kind of measures do, um, do you find yourself going through? Yeah, well, I think it's a huge problem in science. I mean, you know, we have this, uh, there's this uh, philosopher of science, Popper, and we have this notion of Popperian falsification, which is the idea that if I have some theory at whatever field I'm in, my job is to try to disprove my theory, right? So I'm constantly trying to tear my theory down, and the less able I'm to do it, uh, the more confidence I have that my theory is true. But most people, scientists, and, and me too, for sure, I'm, you know, we do the opposite, right? We're trying to find support for our theories. Right. Right. Uh, I, oh, man, you know, if, if I have mixed results, I'm going to focus on the part that makes my theory seem right because that's what, what human nature is. Yeah. But, you know, like the, uh, an old school debiasing technique uh, uh, from decades ago is just to consider all of the ways that your viewpoint might be wrong. So just to sit there and, and consciously generate a list, think about all the possible ways that your viewpoint on this topic might be incorrect and the other side might actually be the correct one. And that actually has a surprisingly large effect mm. uh, on debiasing people. But we, we don't want to do that because it's uncomfortable for us. Yeah, I got a, I got into like a bunch of gun debates recently on, on Facebook and hang on, it's all over the news and whatnot, <laughs> so it's easy to get sucked into. But um, it's... It's I've I've had usually you like make some tweet or something like that and you just get yelled at by everyone that's opposed because it's just like such a lightning rod issue for people. Yeah. Um, but I I had the last time around I had some like thoughtful people that I didn't that came from the other side of the fence and um, that just took their time and and like didn't do name calling and and actually explained their points of view. Um, really well and and it did it just made me think so much more about exact i guess i didn't i wasn't consciously aware that i was doing that but just like how many things am i wrong about with this because one i don't know a damn thing about like how guns like actually work like i wouldn't <laughs> be able to operate one or i've fired them before with like having someone show me you know but i don't know a damn thing about it um, I don't know that that's the relevant expertise in this issue, but <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But um, I, I don't know. It's just the idea of uh, of how challenging it can be just to see things from other uh, points of view. Yeah, it feels I, really good to prop ourselves up and believe that we're right all the time. You know? <laughs> feels way better being right than wrong. <laughs> yeah, it sure does. I mean, you know, so a lot of the work I do is on, uh, you know, uncertainty about yourself or uncertainty about your beliefs. And there's a ton of research that I haven't done, but other people have done that shows that, you know, that's a that's an aversive state. We don't like uncertainty. Uh, and when we feel uncertain about uh, what we're about or what the world's about, we try to we try to rectify that as quickly as possible. Yeah, I. I have a joke in my um, in one of my acts that I talk about how because I have more science in this one act of mine um, and and I talk about and so because of that it's not like as like there's not like five punches per minute or whatever it's it's a little slower it's meant to be a little more thought provoking um, and and so I talk about how sometimes because of that, as a stand up comic, I'm you know you're used to getting like four or five laughs a minute. When <laughs> right. you're not, you're like, oh, am I screwing up here? And so there's two options: either one, this this just simply isn't funny enough, or two, people aren't laughing 
because it's really thought provoking and they're yeah. thinking about it. And it's just so much easier for me to bias my interpretation of it to be like, oh, I'm probably just blowing their minds right now. <laughs> That's why they're not. Because then I still have the confidence to keep going and, yeah. and perform with that, you know. Other, otherwise, you just fall apart on stage if you don't, like, tell yourself oh, sure. things. Well, that's probably true, though, too, right? It's like so much of comedy now is not just about, like, rapid-fire gags. Like, a lot of it's just, like, social commentary, right? It's going that direction, I feel like. Yeah. I, I mean, it's there's there's less and less of the... As time goes by, there's... And, and most comedians start out telling jokes, and then as they become veterans, they end up usually exploring more of themselves or exploring more of the outer world like when i started i was kind of weird one-liners like uh-huh. were you know just playing around with words and building people's expectations and breaking them and then after a while you go but i have all these important thoughts <laughs> that I, I need to say but those long bits are often some of the best bits, you know, like the yeah. I don't know the Bill Burr Arnold Schwarzenegger bit or whatever, you <laughs> yeah, know, yeah, like yeah. he just says crazy shit, and you're like, wait a minute, pal, right? And then <laughs> yeah, yeah. There's this long build. Louis C.K. does the same thing, right? And then there's just long build up, and then at the end, you're like, all right, that was good, that was worth the wait. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, so how did you get into doing um, the getting interested in the stuff that you're working on now? Oh, you know, I don't know. One thing comes from another. You know, a lot of people are really good at having these big research agendas, you know, and they're like, five years from now, I will have studied this topic, and then I'll be transitioning into this other thing. Or or some people are really good at at, at trend forecasting, you know, so like, ah, I think people are going to be studying this in the next five years. That's what I'm going to do. Um, but I'm not all good that way. It's just, for me, it's just like one thing comes from another. You you finish a project and then you think, oh, well, what about this? This would be interesting or you have new thoughts. Uh, and so stuff kind of grows organically out of, out of other projects or, or a lot of, frankly, also a lot of stuff comes from students, right? Students come to me with different ideas and then we, we chat about them and we figure out what would be interesting. Hmm. So how does how does all of your research the the stuff that we've been talking about how does this apply to marketing? Uh, well, that's a good question. I'm a social psychologist by training, uh, yeah. Uh, and so a lot of it is not super marketing, but it also depends on the the boundaries of what you call marketing. I think the people in uh, marketing have different views of this, right? Like there's some people in marketing who think. Uh, marketing is is stuff that you can tell companies to do to increase their profits, uh, which is not my view of marketing. Uh, another view of marketing, which is closer to mine, which is that marketing uh, is anything, you know, the, the, the particular type of marketing that I do is called consumer behavior. So it's like a psychological orientation towards um, understanding uh, consumers. And so they're like anything related to the consumption experience. And we're all consuming things constantly every moment. Consumption could be like reading the news or, right, right, right. or you know, um, people listening to your podcast are engaging in consumption. Right. And so when you think about it, that like, uh, in my view, like all, you know, most of the things I'm interested in fall under that consumer behavior umbrella. Hmm. Um, um, so I saw you did some stuff with, um, with rating um with with people's um it, it, what was it if people rated something like five stars are kind of all over the place people liked it more was that uh, well it's it's other person? it's other people's ratings so let's say you go let's say you go on amazon you can imagine you know so they give you not just the mean rating but they give you the distribution of ratings mm-hmm. right so you can see how many fives how many fours how many threes right so you can see that little 
bar graph that's really like a histogram that tells you how many of each type of rating they have. Um, and so the idea behind that project is like, okay, so first everybody just gave you means. So obviously higher means means it's a better product. That's pretty straightforward. But do people look at these distributions? And if so, like what inferences do they draw from those distributions? Um, if it, you know, so you can imagine something that has like uh, a mean of three and a half. So it's a pretty good product, it seems like. And and all of the the ratings are clustered around that three and a half, right? So the, the it has the most four ratings and second most five, and then it tapers off in this long tail over to one, right? Mm. So most people like it. There are a few people who don't like it very much. Or you can imagine the same mean rating, like three and a half, but it comes from a very different distribution, like a U-shaped distribution, right? Where there are lots of ones and lots of fives and nobody in between. Yeah, people love it or hate it. Right, and so the question is like, what what do you what what do you make? Do, do people even pay any attention to the shape of those distributions? And if so, like, what what meaning do they draw from it? Um, and so, you know, by definition, those U-shaped distributions are polarizing, right? Some people love it, some people hate it. And then the then the question is like, well, what what do what do people think of polarizing products, and and who likes them, and why do they like them? Because on the one hand, you might imagine that nobody likes them. Mm-hmm. Right there's a strong uh, effect in in the psychological literature called negativity bias. Right that right. we're really sensitive to negative information, and so if you give me three ones and three fives, it's going to be really negative for me because the ones have a stronger influence on me psychologically than the fives. Yeah. Um, but we we took a somewhat different tack in thinking that well, you know, there are a lot of people who who like polarizing products. Mm-hmm. You know, you imagine like imagine imagine what you learn about somebody who. Uh, likes dogs versus what you learn about somebody who likes snakes. Like everybody likes dogs for the most part, you know. Uh, but snakes, some people really love them. Some people really hate them. Yeah. Or you know, you listen to like uh, hardcore Japanese noise rock. You know, like well, you know, a lot of people really hate that, but some people really love that. That tells me more than like what people think about Mozart, right? If I say you learned you like Mozart, like. Yeah, everybody likes Mozart just fine. Right. But Japanese noise death metal, that tells me more. If you like that, I, I feel like I learned something more about you. Right. Right? Or if you like cheddar cheese, uh, yeah, okay, everybody likes cheddar cheese fine. But if you like, you know, really stinky, runny cheese, I feel like I learned a little bit more about yeah, you. Yeah, yeah. Right, so there's something about us saying that we like really polarizing stuff that tells us something about that person. More than that, somebody saying that they like something that a lot of other people like, you know, reasonably well. And so it could be that that those polarizing products, those ones with a lot of ones and a lot of fives and not many in between, um, are products that people perceive to be really expressive about the type of person that they are. Mm. And so as a result, they're going to gravitate towards that stuff when they either have high needs for self-expression because they're going to consume uh, that product yeah, yeah. in a self-expressive context, like I'm going to an art gallery opening or something, yeah. or just because I don't know, I, I have self-uncertainty. I feel like, man, you know, I'm going through this period in my life. I don't know what I'm all about. And so, you know, Japanese death metal, here we come. <laughs> and I have to find myself, right? Uh, and so what we find is that like if i don't if i have these self-expression needs then that's when i like these polarizing products because it makes me feel like i know who i am both you know both telling me who i am and also telling you (laughs) who i am yeah that's awesome yeah and so you know there's a a lot of work you know this is you could consider this part of a, a broader array of work in in consumer behavior some of which i've done and a lot of which other people have done which is called 
uh, you know, compensatory consumption, which uh-huh. is that we often consume stuff to compensate for uh, some felt inadequacy, right? And yeah. so, like, in this case, it's like, well, if you really like Japanese, you know, death metal or something, you, you must be a pretty confident person. I re- you really know who you are. And and so that's com- you know compensating for this uncertainty that I have, right? Um, and kind of so, like when I buy fancy meals when I'm at my brokest. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> right. You're showing you still have it, yeah. right? So I have this other paper, you know, where you make just people uncertain about a certain dimension. Like I make you doubt your intelligence. You know, uh, you, you think you do. You know, you probably do this. You know, you do the science podcast because you're not so sure how smart uh, you are. Right? And so right. you know, be onto something. Yeah, you, you, you know, you feel a little overbaked, and then you do your science podcast, and now you're showing everybody how smart you are, right? Right. Um, but you know, you know, you do find hey, that, buddy. <laughs> a little on the nose. <laughs> but you know, you, so oftentimes you find these people who seem the most confident about whatever dimension. Yeah, yeah. and really, it's just a compensatory behavior, right? That and then it, that by. By buying that Corvette, you know, I'm really revealing that I, I feel like I've lost it as a virile male. <laughs> I've always really thought that you can, you can, um, you, you know, a, a lot about a person. You, you know what someone's biggest insecurity is by what they lead with, right. by the mask that they lead with. Totally. You uh, listen to what people talk about, and you know, like what are what are they compulsively like? They can't they can't keep it to themselves. Yeah, that's yeah, 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 yeah. that's what they're about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If you're confident, you don't need to be telling everyone about it all the time, huh? Yeah, like yeah, if you look at some of the most like, it's like it's like a bouncer. Bouncers never like act like they're not picking fights. <laughs> like they don't need to prove any anyone that they're tough. They're just like, Shh, yeah, you know, I can just crush your head if I want to. So yeah, yeah, you, you know, they're they're not like trying to act like. Oh, I'm gonna get in a fight tonight. I'm gonna kick somebody. You know, where other people that are a little more insecure in that regard will will be. You know, those are the ones people starting fights. Oh, totally. Or same thing with money, right? You look at somebody who's you know recently wealthy, but they still don't feel like they've made it. Like they're always trying to show you how rich they are and yeah, all this yeah. stuff. You take somebody who's really rich and has been rich for a long time, like they just you know it's just normal. Yeah, they don't have anything to the, prove to you. Like, they don't. They don't like. They don't get dressed up or anything. Yeah. yeah, like I lived in Malibu for a few years, and those people, people will be like, "Oh, do I need to like dress fancy for this restaurant that we're going to?" I'm like, uh, you go in and find find the worst per- dressed person <laughs> in the bar, and that'll be the most wealthy person. Yeah. in here by yeah. a long shot. Like the person driving the Hummer is like the twenty two year old like. <laughs> son of some <laughs> rich person who yeah. still hasn't found his way yeah yeah um hmm. that's interesting do you do you do other work in that in that vein at all um yeah so i have some work on uh self-uncertainty and minority opinion expression so uh here i don't mean like uh like racial minority or something i just mean like numerical minority so uh another effect of this is like if you feel uncertain about who you are um, you're more likely more likely to express an opinion that diverges from the opinion of most other people. Um, so we were talking about before we started recording. How I, I, I was raised very strictly religious, yeah, yeah. and when I was younger, I was uh, like, I didn't, I, I actually didn't know that people existed in the world that weren't <laughs> religious. It was like everyone that I knew had the same thing going on. And I didn't, I didn't know like what an atheist was or any, like I thought I was like a crazy person. (laughs) And then it, and then it just like, it made me very angry and it was like kind of polarizing for me. Yeah. 
Yeah. So uh, is that? So yeah, you know, when I feel again, it's a, it's the same kind of effect, right? But like when I feel like I don't know who I am, I'm going to express opinions that that are are different from most other people, both as a signal to myself and a signal to other people about who I am. Hmm. Um, um. All right. So so you've figured out why I'm a rebel. <laughs> um, I'm I'm learning more about myself from a marketing professor than <laughs> uh, than, uh, than I have from. I get a lot of free therapy on this <laughs> podcast, but I wasn't expecting this much today. Um, <laughs> what uh, what work come I know you already said that you're not like a a 5-year plan getting in on the next hot trend in <laughs> academia but yeah what, what stuff do you have coming up that you're um excited about exploring uh well yeah i don't know some of it is um work i guess i'm doing with a, a student of mine who's on the job market this year so academics give her a job uh stephanie lynn she does a lot of work on how people uh manage this tension between um having your code of virtue so you know we all have like an implicit code of virtue right there's stuff that you, for you personally yours is different from mine probably but like there's stuff that you feel like you got to do to be a good person mm-hmm. for some people it's i got to exercise you know four times a week for some people it's i can't have any chocolate cake um, for some people it's i should be volunteering you know some stuff is pretty common across people like we probably shouldn't lie to people we shouldn't steal this kind of stuff right we have a code of virtue and we feel bad when we violate that code. Um, but on the other hand, we want to do stuff like eat cake and have beer for lunch and not volunteer and this kind of stuff. Right? So she studies how people uh, maintain this tension. Mm. Um, and so like one of the projects uh, we're working on together is uh, a phenomenon that you're probably familiar with uh, but hasn't really been studied which is this notion of, uh, let, let's say you want to you wanna do something This may be a violation of your code, like um, it doesn't work as well for guys as it does for women, but you know, you want to have that chocolate cake for dessert, uh, or you want to have a drink with lunch, and you know, maybe it's not a, maybe we shouldn't have a drink for lunch, you could have a drink with dinner, but maybe not lunch. Um, so so how, do I, how do I handle that, where I can have that drink at lunch, but I still want to feel good about myself? Um, and the way I can do that is I just encourage you to have a drink with lunch. And if you're having a drink, uh, then I've set this localized norm where it's like, oh, we're having a drink at lunch. Is you know maybe a you know celebration lunch uh, or you know whatever. It's just like we're having at this table. This is what people do. They have beer with lunch, and so by convincing you to do it, then I've set this localized norm, and then I can have the beer and feel good about it. So you see this with desserts all the time. You know, I, I'm not a uh, big sweets fan. It's just not tempting to me. Um, but people get really mad at me when I don't get dessert after <laughs> dinner. They're like, you know, cause there's this negotiation that happens after yeah, dinner. Right? Yeah. You're going to get dessert. Yeah. Uh, come on, come on, uh, <laughs> come on. If I get it, you'll share it with me. Right. We'll, we'll all have dessert. Look, okay, let's, we'll get a couple things for the whole table. Everybody can have a bite, you know, and everybody's trying to play this negotiation game where it's like, you, you can't be the one person at the table eating the cake. Right, that's right, right. that's not acceptable. But if everybody's having a few bites, then we're, this is the table where we have cake, right? It's fine. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, a lot of people have taken uh, social norms to be something like as a given in the in the environment, right? Like, um, you know, there are norms not to litter or norms to do whatever. Um, but you know, what we're doing with this work is showing that well, actually, like people often actively shape the social norms in the environment and they shape them for their own self-interested ends. Mm. And in some ways, like 
I might be doing you a, a disservice um, by making, you know, let's say you're on a diet. I'm going to make you break your diet just so I can break my diet too and not feel so bad about it. Yeah. This um, is why I'm such a big advocate <laughs> for psychedelics. <laughs> yeah. I just really like psychedelics. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, everybody should do them, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, oh, that's, that is, that's really funny. Um, just, just try to make the environment around you, um, as, as, uh, immoral as you are. <laughs> and then you're, and then you're moral as well. Yeah. Good in. And so pay attention. I'm sure you'll see it all the time. You engage in these little social negotiations with people so that whoever wants to do the, the worst thing, you know, will drag you along <laughs> so that they're no longer the worst. You know, you're tied for worst. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I've, uh, you, got, you just got to have that friend around yeah. who's, who's so much worse than you are yeah. so you can pat yourself on the back and still get into some mischief. Right, and there's all this research on eating and stuff showing like people will eat and eat and eat, but they just don't want to be the person who eats the most at the table. You know, they want to be like the second most. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, um, <laughs> yeah, look at like Thanksgiving or something like that. Where... Yeah, come on, come on. Yeah, ha- have, have some more turkey. Go ahead, have some more. Uh, have some pie. That's terrific. Um, all right. Well, uh, yeah, I think that's uh, that's good. Um, thank you, Christian Wheeler, for joining me. Yeah, this was program fun. today. It was a lot of fun. And um, and thank you, everyone, for being curious people and for listening. And I'll talk with you next week. This week's Charity of the Week, brought to you by Christian Wheeler, is... The San Francisco SPCA. Uh, it's a fabulous no-kill animal shelter. Um, they're fabulous for a lot of reasons. So first of all, they're a no-kill shelter. Um, but secondly, they uh, have a lot of operational um, execution elements that make them totally different from other uh, animal adoption-based charities. For example, they take in all kinds of sick animals, um, where at most shelters... Being a sick animal, sadly, is something that uh, that uh, gets you put down. Um, but there, they treat the animals, bring them back to health, and, and get them adopted quickly. Uh, but they also have all kinds of community efforts, uh, such as low-cost spay and neuter programs, such as animal uh, trap and neuter and release programs, and other things such that uh, San Francisco has uh, the lowest uh, feral animal rate of any major city in the United States. That's awesome. Um, scientists love animals, man. They're always plugging um, animal shelters and, and, and that sort of thing. It's, it's uh, wonderful. <laughs> Who doesn't like animals? What kind of a monster is listening right now and doesn't want to help? So especially if you're living in the Bay Area, check them out. What was the name again? The San Francisco SPCA. All right. And you can always go to the herewearepodcast.com website to learn more. Thank you for listening. Thank you, everybody, for listening. Also, thank you for reviewing, writing, uh, writing me at the herewearepodcast.com website, giving feedback, all of that good stuff, sharing with all of your friends. Again, keep spreading the word for me. I think we're reaching a tipping point with this podcast. Got a small, loyal group of followers that have been enthusiastically sharing it with others, and I think we're very close uh, to becoming... Um, a actual popular, much more popular podcast. Uh, it's a popular podcast already, actually, so thank you. Um, but if we can get a little more popular, that means I'll be able to take the show on the road and do a lot more live episodes. We are a ways off from that, but once we hit a certain number of people, the rest will kind of take care of itself. So please keep on spreading the word for me. And... 
I know many of you enjoy the episodes about psychedelics that we've done so far. Tomorrow, not tomorrow, next week is a fantastic one uh, with uh, Brad Burgess, who is the communications um, direct and marketing director for MAPS, the Multidisciplinary Associate Association of Psychedelic Studies. We have a fantastic conversation about MDMA and MDA and um, uh, talk a little bit about ayahuasca and uh, a few other things. Some really fascinating, interesting background in history on MDMA and MDA, uh, which I had no idea about and was kind of blown away. So make sure and tune in next week. More on that. And if you're interested in psychedelics, make sure and check out my web schedule. I have many of my shows about psychedelics, A Good Trip with Shane Moss. Coming up, I'm, I'll be doing it in um, uh, this week, Lafayette, Louisiana, New Orleans. I'll be doing it in Indianapolis coming up, in Wilmington, in Myrtle Beach, in Denton, Texas. And I'm lining up a real big city for the fall, all, uh, all with my psychedelic show. More on that soon. It is uh, coming, getting closer and closer to being finalized. Very, very excited. So, um, yeah, please keep supporting the show and try to catch me live somewhere. Thank you very much. Talk to you soon. Kyle Ayers, I'm the host of Never Seen It, the podcast where comedians rewrite famous movies and TV shows they've never seen, and then we give them a read in studio. This is a clip I want to play for you guys from an episode where Langston Kerman rewrites Scarface. He's never seen it, but he wrote a script based on what he thinks he knows about it, and here's a clip. Give it a listen. All right. Scarface, the new frontier. Interior, happening discotheque. Remember when we call clubs discotheques? <laughs> LOL, the 70s were crazy. Night. The crowd bustles with young, hot Mexicans who are supposed to be Cuban and all are dressed in butterfly collared shirts and pants that look like Jinko jeans and pleated khakis had a really weird baby. <laughs> There's sex in the air and Poppy wants a whiff. <laughs> oh my God. Scarface, 22 to 45. <laughs> like he's a television audience demographic? Devilishly handsome. Not even a little bit Italian looking, so get that out of your dumb brain. Walks through the crowd with the confidence of a man who's going on MTV Cribs with the Ying Yang Twins. Does he actually have a scar on his face? Fuck no. Why would, he even, why would you even ask that? That's not important. What's important is that he is not at all a problematic stereotype <laughs> and that he has come for his cocaine. 
as he approaches the red rope of the VIP, pronounced V-A-P-E in Spanish. Oh my gosh. <laughs> he spots his dear friend, who is almost certainly going to become his enemy by the end of the film, Smooth Skin. Scarface yells out his signature line. <laughs> Ciao, Bella. It's me, Scarface. 